Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guests three individuals from NYU Langone Health. Dr. Tamara Bushnick is an Associate Professor and Director of Interhospital Research and Knowledge Translation at Rusk Rehabilitation. Dr. Brian M. is the Director of Brain Injury Rehabilitation at Rusk where he treats both inpatients and outpatients in the Brain Injury Rehabilitation Program. And Michelle Smith is an assistant research scientist, where she manages day-to-day activities of studies, including the Traumatic Brain Injury Model Systems National Database, and I'll keep referring to this as TBIMS. So thank you all for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Dr. Bushnick is the project director of the current Rusk Rehabilitation, TBIMS, at NYU. She has over 50 peer-reviewed manuscripts since joining that project. She's been the chairperson of the TBIMS Knowledge Translation Committee since 1999 and has led the selection of topics for the popular Traumatic Brain Injury Fact Sheets and end-of-grant-cycle special issues and sections highlighting TBIMS research. Dr. M is heavily involved in program development and academic medicine. He's the program director for the ACGME Accredited Brain Injury Medicine Fellowship at NYU School of Medicine, has an active role in TBI research, and is heavily involved in the TBIMS projects. His research focus of interest is in studying the healthcare disparities and differences that exist in TBI care for different populations. Michelle Smith has a professional background and interests in health communications with the goal of providing vital information to patients to help improve their health through increasing health literacy. Prior to her current role, she managed the development and implementation of research studies to improve health in the underserved community of Harlem by developing and maintaining a website and a randomized control trial to reduce hypertension. Rusk is one of 16 nationwide centers funded by that TBIMS system. Please describe the stage that this endeavor is in at your institution during the five-year funding period from the standpoint of what's been achieved thus far and any future outcomes that you have planned. Sure, I'll take that question. We have just started our second cycle. It's a five-year cycle for the TBI model system. We were successfully refunded um, at the end of September of 2017. And so we are literally not even six months into the new grant cycle. So it's very exciting that we're able to start our new projects. Essentially, what we did was in our previous grant cycle, we took the information that we had learned and we built our current research projects and activities on that basis. 
So I'd like to talk just a little bit about what we found out and some of the interesting findings from the past grant cycle, and then we can talk about how we're moving forward in the current grant cycle. So we focused on health disparity and health literacy in inpatient rehab patients with traumatic brain injury. And our primary hospital from which we get our participants and provide services under the TBIMS is at Bellevue Hospital, which is a hospital that takes all people, regardless of ability to pay, uh, and regardless of immigration status and healthcare status, social support, et cetera. So it's really a, uh, a safety net hospital. And so there's, a great, there's great diversity there in the patient population not just with race, but also socioeconomic status, and as I mentioned, social support and family. And so what we did was we started exploring in this patient population some of the risk factors that they have that may, might uh, impact their outcomes either during inpatient rehabilitation or after they get discharged from Bellevue Hospital. And some of the things that we found is that there's a large proportion of our population that is homeless, but it's actually more than that. It's a new term that's being defined as housing unstable. And what that means is that these are individuals that at the time that they come to Bellevue, they might be living at home or in a residence, but if you ask them about what their history of living in a residence is, a large number of individuals will endorse the fact that they have been living in marginal residences. They might be living on a friend's couch for a couple of months. They're called a housing unstable population. And so we looked at that and we found a fairly high percentage of our Bellevue population endorsed being housing unstable. And it's something that the TBIMS does not capture in their database. And so we're adding to that because we're a large urban city, obviously, and the lessons that we're learning from Bellevue by asking these additional questions can be used by other large cities that have TBI programs and need to understand the, the fact that a person might go through inpatient rehabilitation, but if they're being discharged to an unstable situation, their outcome is not going to be very good. And so we need to address not just the, the rehabilitation perspective of TBI, but also some of the social aspects and, and environmental aspects that these individuals are going to be living in once they're discharged from the hospital. So that housing unstable piece should prove to be quite valuable on a national basis as all this information is pulled together. And among the 16 centers, are they all basically working on different projects and doing different kinds of things? Yes, yes, we definitely are. So each, each center really plays to its own strengths. So there are some centers that are very good at a more basic kind of approach to predicting outcome, looking for biomarkers that may be able to predict how a person's going to do after they have had a traumatic brain injury. So we're talking biomarkers such as imaging studies, like functional magnetic resonance imaging, or more sophisticated imaging studies as well. There are other centers that some of them are more like us. They have a more diverse population, 
And so uh, they, they're trying to address those issues. There are a number of centers right now that are actually focusing on caregivers of uh, individuals with traumatic brain injury and trying to determine the kinds of interventions that can help support the caregiver, which can then improve the outcomes of the, the loved one who has a traumatic brain injury. And how will all this be pulled together at some point to advance rehabilitation care? That'll be done by the National Institutes of Health. And what do they have in mind as far as consolidating all the information coming out of the 16 centers and then using that to improve rehab care? Right. Well, actually, we're, we're not part of the National Institutes of Health. We're a different department under the Department of Health and Human Services. So our funding agency is called the National Institute on Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, or NIDLR, and it's under the Administration for Community Living. So we're different from NIH. But what we've been doing is this, get, this information gets pulled together in a number of different ways. Obviously, professionally, there are conferences and there are peer-reviewed publications that occur independently by each of the model systems. We also have a very large conference coming up in June of this year that will that all of the model systems will be at and will be presenting their information. We do work on fact sheets, so the information that comes out from the studies gets compiled and developed so that it can be used by family members as well as participants, as well as persons with traumatic brain injury and allied healthcare professionals. Well, thank you for clarifying that funding source. I thought it was at the behest of the NIH that the project was funded. Yes, a, a lot of people think that we're funded by NIH, but we're not. Okay. All the patients who sustained a traumatic brain injury or a TBI would seem to fall into two groups. The first would be those who were injured earlier in life, and now they've grown older over a many-year period. And a second group would be patients who experienced a TBI after they've already entered the old age brackets. So from the perspective of providing rehabilitation care, please indicate if the two groups are fundamentally different, and if so, in what ways. Yeah, I think I can take this one. You know, I don't actually think that these two groups in and of themselves are the fundamentally different as much as every patient is a little bit different and a little bit unique. Um, and it all, it does kind of go along the lines of what I think you're alluding to with this question, which is that it depends on where you are in your stage of life, as well as where you are in terms of, you know, where you fit into the dynamics of your family, the social dynamics of your family. So, for instance, and I think some of that can be generalized to a younger and older population to some extent. So, for instance, a younger patient you know, they're all, depending on how young they are, they may still have support from their parents. Uh, they may be still be financially dependent on their parents. At the same time, they may either be just starting work or still in school trying to get education to go into work, a work environment. And the dynamic, uh, you know, within their social structures, then they may still be living at home or just about to leave home. Whereas somebody, you know, from the older demographic population, uh, a lot of those patients may be closing in on retirement if not already retired. They may be grandparents as opposed to being, you know, somebody that is re relying financially on somebody else. At the same time, they could also be somebody who is being taken care of by their, by their children if they're at, uh, at, that, uh, at that stage in their lives. So you can see how all those different things can really play into play factors into how you approach these patients and what the, their challenges and their needs are. And I can also say somebody who's older, though, 
they may be dependent on their children, as I said, both financially as well as for care support. And someone who's younger, though, may be much more independent than somebody else in his cohort, so they may be actually in a different place. So I think all those different things make the demographics of just, you know, older versus younger a little bit misleading. I think it really falls down to the individual unique needs of those patients. Having said that, I think they can comment a little bit on how that affects, you know, how we approach the patient. Certainly, somebody who's in the stage where they're a little bit more independent in their lives, they're, they're working, they're in school, you know, we tend to approach our rehabilitation program to, the, to fit their needs in that aspect of their lives. So, for instance, that person may have, you know, much more in the lines of, you know, early on, obviously, getting them back to being independent, but then later on, focusing on the vocational skills, on really being much more independent in the community and also looking at support available for them to help provide for their safety while they try to progress through those stages, knowing that we're trying to get them as independent as possible. Whereas somebody who's older in life who's already retired um, is not really looking to go back to work, we may be just looking at how we can keep them safe in their house as well as making them as independent and, and enjoying life as much as possible, but not so focused on the return to work aspect of things and trying to get them used to handling stress as you would with somebody who's younger and has to return to that environment. Um, and also, at the same time, the support you're looking for that person may be coming from, you know, their, uh, their children or some other uh, living situation that would provide support for them that may be different than somebody who's younger, who you're looking at their spouses. And again, the dynamics and the social dynamics and the family dynamics that are associated with those relationships would change how you also address those patients. So I think it's not so much the, those two groups as much as every individual is a little, a little bit different. And we try to look at all the different factors that would influence their needs. Well, thank you for providing that explanation. Patients arrive for treatment at Rusk with different levels of health literacy. Factors influenced by that level of literacy might include their knowledge and understanding of prognoses, understanding the goals of treatment, and their ability to participate in shared decision-making with members of the rehabilitation team. What kinds of interventions are necessary when you encounter these literacy levels that are not really at optimal levels? So I'll take this question. Basically, when health literacy levels are low, it means that there is difficulty in understanding not just the material that's being presented, but also the entire process of working in, within the healthcare system. So I think some of the interventions that are necessary is to really use easy to understand language. Sometimes it can be very easy to fall into the trap, quote unquote, of just speaking as you would with your colleagues. But when you're talking with a population that may have low literacy as far as education goes, Speaking at a level that's sixth grade or less would be helpful. In addition to using pictures where possible, demonstrating what the diagnosis is, what should be done after one getting home, sort of how also that prognosis kind of affects their ability to do certain things. So this might be if there are any pamphlets that you know are available to use those um, demonstrating all those different issues. Staying away from two technical medical terms is also very important. And then I think kind of related to this communication portion is the use of an interpreter if necessary. Now, with the use of an interpreter, we're not talking about family members or friends that accompany the patient. That can be used, but it's really much more helpful and actually much better to use a official interpreter. And the reason for that is that sometimes family members or friends might omit information from either side, whether it's coming from the medical professional or coming from the patient. So you want to make sure you're getting a full history from the patient as much as possible. So relying on the family members, while it can seem like an easy fix, if there's a possibility to have an interpreter on board, that would be optimal. 
As far as for also for low health literacy, talk back technique is also very helpful where if you're saying information to the patient or their families about what their condition is and how to treat it, you might want to ask them to repeat back what you said or tell it back to you in a way that they understood it so that you can correct any issues that might have occurred during the encounter. So if there is a certain area of, you know, you go home and you use this medication X number of times a day, if they didn't necessarily understand that by having them talk back to you, they'll be able to recall what it is that you did say. If it needs to be corrected, then you'll be able to use some of those other techniques, such as using pictures or demonstrating and writing down clearly what the correct information is. And it might also be helpful for health literacy because it's not just about understanding the information that is presented, but also how to get additional help. So if there are ways that you can provide additional resources, either within the healthcare system or perhaps in the community, that would also be helpful in making sure that people are safe and getting the attention that they need after they are discharged. In addition to what you just mentioned about the literacy levels, New York City is famous for the number of foreign-born individuals you have living there. They're coming from nations all over the world. And some of those other places may have other major medical systems in addition to what we have in what we call Western allopathic medicine. It's possible that as a result of their backgrounds, they may have different sets of beliefs about the causes of health problems and the most effective ways of treating them. If you encounter such situations, how do you go about addressing patients' treatment preferences? So I'd like to start with that from the research perspective, and then I'll have Dr. M talk about from the clinical perspective. So we have a study that we're just finishing up right now that that was trying to address that exact issue. And we developed two videos that were very simple that described the brain injury itself to start with. And then the second video described the rehab process the outpatient rehab process, the discharge process, again with pictures, and we had uh, a number of different videos. We had English and Spanish, and we had a, a woman and a man for both of them so that we could give to the patient themselves in their own language and gender matched. We then, our outcome measure, which we're just starting to look at now, is whether or not we improve the, the percentage of folks that come back for their first outpatient visit because we tend to lose a lot of people once they're discharged. So we're, we were trying to address from the research perspective, providing additional education, again, with be, trying to be sensitive to race, language, as well as health literacy in order to be respectful of what the person's beliefs were, but to try to emphasize the importance of staying within the system for outpatient treatment. Yeah, and I think clinically, you know, along the same lines, uh, you try to form as much of a rapport you, as you can with, the, with that patient and their family. Certainly, you can't change who you are, but you can change, you know, how you approach a patient and how your staff and how your team approaches that patient. So a lot of times on, it's fact-finding from the family as well as from the patient you know, what do they believe in? You know, what do they value? What do they think the recovery course is going to be like? What do they think the challenges are for them as, as they go home with the uh, current situation? And really using that as a basis to kind of form how you approach that patient. 
And certainly, you know, we have experience with, you know, different ethnicities uh, being in New York City over time that we've developed. And we know, you know, the, there are certain things that certain ethnicities tend to favor versus others in terms of approaches and beliefs. But having said that, you know, we always have to keep an open mind because, uh, as I said before, uh, as much as there are certain similarities, there are also very vast differences even within uh, one same culture, and we've experienced that as well. So a lot of it comes down to trying to get to the patients and the family's personal beliefs, understanding the context they come from, and then trying to use all that uh, as a way to identify with the patient and form that rapport. In the end, what I've found is that forming a rapport with the patient and the family, regardless of their ethnicity and culture, is the most important thing. And if you can do that, I think that that transcends a lot of just, you know, look at the stereotypical things that, you know, we think that different cultures value and do not value. In terms of, for instance, you know, acupuncture has always traditionally been considered a very Eastern approach to treatment. Having said that, I can tell you that when I see patients, it's very evenly divided between who values and who doesn't value acupuncture across cultures. Uh, there are people, patients who I've seen, uh, you know, who are Asian descent, who they think acupuncture is bogus and they won't even consider it. Whereas other patients who are, you know, born and raised in this country, they swear by acupuncture and would rather prefer that as opposed to many of the medications that we think may be helpful. Again, you take with a grain of salt, and I try to provide education and support based to the best of my knowledge as to what are the, some of the drawbacks and side effects of different treatments of both medication as well as non-pharmacological. So, as I, so I don't lead them down a road that I think is unethical or inappropriate. But having said that, keeping an open mind, I think, is the most important thing. So our study right now in our current grant cycle is trying to address this issue and, and also address the cultural possible differences. So the study is essentially three phases. We are right now going out into the community and we're, our, we have created a community advisory board that will represent the diverse populations in New York City, or a number of them. We can't address all of them, of course. And what we are going to then do is go out into the communities and interview individuals with traumatic brain injury who have been living with the condition for a very long time or a long time. So these would be individuals who are at least a year post-TBI. They could be 15 years post-TBI or even longer. And we want to find out about what their experience has been and is in living with TBI as a chronic condition. And what we hope to do is then to be able to compare the different cultural and racial groups and see what are the issues that may be unique in living with a traumatic brain injury. And then finally, what we want to do in phase three is use that information and create essentially an, ed an educational toolkit that will be focused on different audiences. So there will be a toolkit for the individual with TBI and their family. There will be one for the primary care physician who's out in the community and may not even think about inquiring whether this person had had a TBI in the past. We also want to find out how to actually ask about whether a person had a traumatic brain injury. In a lot of different groups that we've been talking to, they don't even have terms to describe what a traumatic brain injury is. And so how do we provide that education and learn how people are living with TBI? How do older adults respond to aggressive management and rehabilitation compared to patients who are considerably younger? And are these all the patients at any higher risk for the onset of later conditions, such as dementia or Parkinson's? We approach every patient as an individual and uh, treat them according to their individual and unique challenges. But having said that, 
there are some things that you can be said that can be generalizable to an older versus a younger population. And I think uh, the concern over dementia and Parkinson's does kind of bring that up a little bit, which is that, you know, as, as we all, all of us, as we age, our brains tend to atrophy a little bit. We tend to have a little bit less reserve in the tank, so to speak, for ability to kind of compensate for injuries to the brain, as well as for anything that can kind of throw us off from our usual routine. So having said that, someone who's younger, who's had less atrophy, less comorbidities, medical comorbidities in their lives, they tend to have, for uh, lack of a better word, healthier brains. And so if they, have, they suffer an insult and injury to the brain, there's a potential and prognosis for uh, greater overall functional recovery because uh, they have more reserve brain function. Uh, we don't understand exactly how this all works. Some people say that there's an element of plasticity, neuroplasticity involved, which more and more people are believing in these days. That other people say there's way, uh, our brain tends to rework and reroute different uh, pathways to uh, create as functional independence as possible with uh, whatever injury was done afterwards. And other people say also after a period of swelling, you know, the brain does go down and whatever brain functions left afterwards, it kind of comes, uh, comes back and helps us function as well. Whichever of these or if there's a combination of these that you believe in, certainly a younger, healthier brain will, ha will have a greater ability to bounce back after such an injury and insult. And so just as you do in, uh, in the general population, uh, younger, healthier patients tend to do better in terms of prognosis-wise as a general group than older patients, and also the risk of dementia and Parkinson's increases as you, as you go up in age. There's a controversy as to whether you know, having a traumatic brain injury puts you at a greater risk of dementia or Parkinson's disease, and that's something really in the forefront now with all this concussion talk that's going on these days. I think it's, you know, there's a lot more that has to be learned to, dis to determine what that really means and how that really uh, plays out. To the extent that emotional functioning is considered an important factor, can a TBI affect emotional functioning, such as the level of awareness, in ways that could add to the challenge of achieving the beneficial outcomes of treatment that you're seeking? Definitely. It actually, one of the hallmarks of traumatic brain injury is uh, behavioral dysfunction and, be, uh, and this behavioral dysregulation. The hallmarks of traumatic brain injury are behavioral dysfunction, cognitive dysfunction, as well as physical dysfunction. They can affect all different aspects of functioning that the brain can control. Having said that, TBI specifically tends to affect preferentially the frontal areas of the brain. So that being said, the frontal areas of the brain are where we have a lot of our emotional control, emotional regulation control, as well as our cognitive, higher level cognitive functioning, executive functioning skills that we use to help organize our thoughts, process information, problem solve, all those different things. So you can see that those two different issues are exactly where, uh, at the heart of this question that you're asking. So for instance, a traumatic brain injury patient can have both lack of insight and awareness as to the deficits that they have, both cognitively as well as physically, especially if they have subtle balance issues, for instance. But it also can affect their behavioral control, so their ability to control their mood, their ability to control their impulses. For instance, they may jump up and do something without being aware of that it's an unsafe situation. And again, if you have lack of awareness in terms of balance, you have lack of awareness of your cognitive issues, and you're impulsive on top of that, you can see how that's a perfect storm in terms of really putting you at risk of hurting yourself further. They also can control your ability to control your emotions in, in different social situations. So, for instance, something that, you know, somebody does to make you angry when it was angry, a lot of times we'll kind of temper that with our, you know, ability to kind of control our emotions, you know, regulate ourselves and try to be civil, right? For a traumatic brain injury patient, that may not be as easy. And that's why you get a, a lot of traumatic brain injury patients who have this aggressive, agitated behavior at times that seems out of proportion to what you would expect from a person in that same situation otherwise. So definitely, these are all challenges that are affected by traumatic brain injury patients. 
Along with balance problems and factors such as agitation, are sleep disorders also associated with TBI? And if so, what might be done to treat that particular problem? Because anyone who's not getting enough rest, they're going to be tired, they're going to be groggy. You add the balance problem and they're candidates for some falls, which are just going to lead to more head injuries, correct? Yes, yes, that is, that is definitely correct. There's a large literature that's being developed right now examining sleep disorders, both on the inpatient side, so soon after the traumatic brain injury, and also once the person has been discharged and is back hopefully living in the community. There are traditional, typical treatments that can be given that would be given to anybody who has a sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome, et cetera. One of the interesting things though is that the sleep problems can definitely be treated and can then go away. But one of the things that seems to be very refractory to treatment is this issue of fatigue. And it's not just being tired or sleepy, it's a deep fatigue that is both cognitive and physical. And it's something that we've been looking at for a very long time. As I said, it's quite refractory to treatment and it's a conundrum in how to, how to treat that. Yeah, and even with good sleep-wake cycles, a lot of patients will still say that they have you know, fatigue issues regardless if they slept well that night or not. I'd like to close by thanking all three of you for the valuable information and insights you provided about TBI from the perspective not only of old age, but also of multiculturalism. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today, and I wish you continued success in all of your endeavors. Again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.